522, Chapters 9 and 10 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Book talk starts at 2940. Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 522, Silence Equals Death. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am discomposed this week. It's been a weird week, not just because it's been a weird week all over the United States. It's a weird week because it's a weird week all over the United States, and I'm living in a very small town, which is very strange right now, having been in the middle of, middle of or adjacent to so many big, difficult things in the past between the, the L.A. riots after the Rodney King verdict or 9-11, to suddenly be somewhere where everything is very quiet is really hard, strangely. But it was also weird this week because I worked at the polls with several friends, and I, I have to share something that truly unnerved me. I mentioned it last night at the Craftlet book chat, and this is why I actually didn't make it back to the Tuesday book chat. So thank you, Tracy and Amy. Amy, I am looking forward to hearing from you about your mask. The voting went well, first off. That was the best part. Actually, there were, there were two things that unnerved me. The first was that our fearless leader, my friend who's been running our polling district for several years now, and she's amazing at it, so calm and focused and just graceful under pressure, her son was terrified to the point where he was calling her every hour on the hour. Her son was terrified that she was going to be shot and killed. And the reason that she would be shot and killed while working at a polling place is that he knew that the state of Pennsylvania was requiring masks to be worn inside. This would not prevent anyone from voting. They had an option. They could vote outside at a little privacy booth that we had set up specifically for this. So there was, a, there was an option. No one was going to have their right to vote infringed upon. But it did mean that while they could fill out the paper ballot outside, they would not be able to put it into the scanner on their own. We would, we would have to be trusted to do that for them. And we only had two people, two men, older white men, who refused to wear a mask. One was fairly pathetic and came in all blustery like he was going to be Mr. Tough Guy. And then <laughs> in trying to explain why he wasn't wearing a mask, somehow he felt he needed to explain it. He kind of lamely went, yeah, I, uh, I have an allergy. At which point everyone just stopped and turned and looked at him like it was an E.F. Hutton commercial and then went on with the, all right, then we need you to sign this book and then we'll take you outside with their ballot so you can. <laughs> and he was, he was embarrassed, which was good. <laughs> so the having your 10 year old son being terrified that you're going to get shot for working at the polls 
and nicely asking somebody to put a mask on to protect other people. That's a sad state of affairs. It's not surprising. The kid hasn't, he hasn't even seen all that much TV or news, but clearly this is what's getting into his brain. And it's, it's hard to watch, and it's hard not to see how he got there. Second thing that happened was I wound up talking about a dozen people, all told, off a ledge during the day. And we, we had been to a training session, so we saw how this new paper balloting system was going to work. It was basically paper ballots on specialized paper, a very specific and secret thickness, micron count thickness, that would be accepted by the scanner. So if anybody had tried to print out X ballots and scan them, first off, we had somebody watching, so not going to happen. But second off, the scanner would have spit it back if you tried to print it on cardstock and bring it in. The scanner would spit it back. There's no way you can buy the paper or get the digital watermarks that are on the paper correct if you are trying to scam the system. So it's ridiculously safe. And not only ridiculously safe, but it has a paper trail. So if for whatever reason something goes wrong with the counting or a particular race is too close to call and you need to do a recount, you have both the printout tapes from the scanner that telling you the totals of everything, but you also have the paper ballots. So you can see, did somebody not bubble in one of the, the little bubbles next to the name clearly? And honestly, if that happened, the scanner spit things back. There were several people who had gone through with check marks first and then realized that they needed to fill in the bubbles. So they did have stray marks on the paper, but the scanner took those votes. And I'm pretty confident that those votes were calculated correctly because when there were darker stray marks on the paper, so not a check mark, but like a, a dark smudge, the scanner did kick it back. So I was impressed. I was very impressed. But over the course of the day, had about a dozen people who were, in varying degrees, scared of paper. Scared of paper informed me that they were shocked and horrified that we had regressed technologically into a place where we were foolishly using something as easy to invalidate as paper. You are a podcast listener. You know a thing or two about the digital world. You know how easy it is to erase files accidentally on a computer. You know, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts, that you know that people who know their way around digital code can get into anything, a program, a text file, anything, and rearrange code to do whatever you need it to do. The idea that any kind of digital record is safer than paper horrifies me. But I'll tell you, it is really, really upsetting to have a 73-year-old woman tell you, and her face is showing fear, telling you that paper ballots, whether scanned in a building with us or vote by mail, are somehow easier to forge, forge, or manipulate than digital records. I was really proud of how calm I was, and I really was glad that I had worked as a teacher in New York City, because it's good training for keeping calm in weird, 
weird and what could otherwise be tense moments. On the whole, the day went well. Uh, most of the people were lovely. Some of the people were irked. Some of the masks were hilarious. But everybody, everybody who was there was glad to be doing their, their civic duty and exercising their right to vote. But it's been a hard week. I downloaded some audio from Stephen Colbert interviewing Cory Booker. Just yesterday, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris both spoke in the Senate. If you aren't familiar with them, if you're from outside the United States, these are two senators in the United States Senate. So that's the smaller of the two houses of Congress. In a very rare show of solidarity, there was a, a vote to pass anti-lynching legislation. And 99 people were voting for it. And Rand Paul, Rand Paul, a medical doctor, was going to vote against it. And Kamala Harris and Cory Booker both got up and spoke very passionately. I, I accept what you say, that this is not about Donald Trump. This is about us. But don't a nation's leaders reflect what the people will allow? And we are now equipped with the um, least helpful leader I could imagine in this moment, because you need a sense of unity and a sense of humility, especially in this moment. Oh, so they can re-examine your, uh, your, own, your own values and whether you live the principles that you claim to be for. And yeah, I, 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 go ahead, sir. The test, that, that is, you put your finger on the test, Stephen. There's not a generation of America, Americans that has not had someone rise to powerful positions of, with demagoguery, hate, and divisiveness. Uh, Father Conklin with his anti-Semitic screeds, number one radio show, you had McCarthyism, uh, but how did we beat Bull Connors and George Wallace's? It was a test of us. I, I was, I was I, when I was running for president this year, I'm uh, running for a stage, I, I'm big guy, you know, and I'm running for a stage and a big guy confronts me and, and says to me, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, that's a felony. <laughs> you know, I mean, you cannot beat Donald Trump by being more like him. And, 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 and you, you, can't, you cannot win th this country by, by taking on the tactics of those who, who, you, who, who try to oppress you. And, and, I'm, and, and, and I'm sorry, and people just can disagree with me, but I, I really think this is a moral test of how well we are gonna create that more beloved community because I'm sorry that 58 million people that voted for Donald Trump and, and about 3 million more voted for, for Hillary Clinton. I'll not forget that. But those 58 million people are not my enemy. You know, I, I agree. I agree. I agree that they're not. I'm not asking you to blame no, I know that, but, but, and, and, but we demonize each other as if we are. We have more animus often towards each other than our common uh, uh, real foes who are laughing at us. I read intelligence reports. I know what the Russians one of their main strategies right now, it reflects Khrushchev, we will destroy you from within. They believe that if they can make us hate each other enough that we can't even get a common sense bill passed from lynching legislation to infrastructure on stuff we agree on. The greatest human being in this body uh, is a guy named John Lewis. Sure. And I, he's, that's the last thing I did before I walked to the, to the, down the road to, to get sworn in by Joe Biden. And my dad had just died days before I was sworn in. And my mom rightfully took me to see John Lewis. And you know, one of the things he, he amazing stories that he told me was 
that he's told me was that one day in so one of his constituents asked to see him, an older man, and I think his child or grandchild, was one of the people that beat him on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And he came to John Lewis and, and asked for his forgiveness in front of this child of his. And I'm sorry, I'm, I don't know if I, have the, <laughs> if I have that spiritual alchemy that John Lewis has <laughs> mm -hmm. to transform the most wretched corners of our country into an opportunity for redemption. A love that great. They can, they can literally have the two men in the end weeping together and holding each other. There was also a piece that I saw where Trevor Noah, who I think I talked about his book, Born a Crime, which is excellent and highly recommended to listen to on Audible as a recorded audiobook because he does the reading and he speaks all the languages. So his pronunciation of words that I had never seen before, it's correct if you listen to the audiobook. He's very good. He's very funny. He's very smart. And if you've never watched him or his his daily show, which used to be hosted by Jon Stewart, you've been missing out. And if you have watched him on The Daily Show, but you haven't watched The Daily Show YouTube channel where they do between the scenes, where it's just him talking to the audience, you've really been missing out. Since we've been at home with the coronavirus lockdown, he's been doing some of that on his own at home. This was one of those times. And for the first seven, ten minutes or so, he goes through his reactions as as an African, African-American. And it's it's always interesting to listen to him. But he he really kicks into gear when, I think, when he starts talking about the social contract, which goes straight back to Enlightenment ideals, which we've talked about on the show plenty of times in various books that we've read. And here's, here's a chunk of, um, of what Trevor Noah had to say. And I think... One ray of sunshine for me in that moment was seeing how many people instantly condemned what they saw. You know, and maybe it's because I'm an optimistic person, but I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, especially not in America. I haven't seen a police video come out and, and just see across the board. I mean, even Fox News commentators and, and police chiefs from around the country immediately condemning what they saw no questions not what was he doing not just going no this what happened here was wrong it was wrong this person got murdered on camera and then the police were fired great but i i think what people take for granted is 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 how much for so many people that feels like nothing you know how 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 many of us as, as human beings can take the life of another human being and then have firing be the worst thing that happens to us? And yes, we don't know where the case will go, don't get me wrong, but it just, it, it feels like there is no moment of justice. There is no, you know, if you're watching a movie, you'd at least want the cops, you'd want to see the perpetrators in handcuffs. You'd want to see the perpetrators facing some sort of justice. Yes, they might come out on bail, etc. But I think there's a lot of catharsis that comes with seeing that justice being doled out. When the riots happened, that for me was an interesting culmination of everything. I saw so many people online saying, 
These riots are disgusting. This is not how a society should be run. You do not loot and you do not burn and you do not, this is not how our society is built. And that, that actually triggered something in me where I was like, man, okay, society, what, but what is society? And fundamentally, when you boil it down, society is a contract. It's a contract that we sign as human beings amongst each other. We sign a contract with each other as people, whether it's spoken or unspoken, and we say, amongst this group of us, we agree in common rules, common ideals, and common practices that are going to define us as a group. That's what I think a society is. It's a contract. And as with most contracts, the contract is only as strong as the people who are, who are abiding by it. But if you think of being a black person in America who is living in Minneapolis or Minnesota or any place where you're not having a good time, ask yourself this question when you watch those people, what vested interest do they have in maintaining the contract? Why, like, why don't we all loot? Why, why, don't, why doesn't everybody take? Why don't, because we've agreed on things. There are so many people who are starving out there. There's so many people who don't have. There's so many people. There are people who are destitute. There are people who, when the virus hits and they don't have a second paycheck already broke, which is insane, but that's, that's the reality. But still, think about how many people who don't have, the have-nots, say, you know what? I'm still going to play by the rules even though I have nothing because I still wish for this society to work and exist. And then some members of that society, namely black American people, watch time and time again how the contract that they have signed with society is not being honored by the society that has forced them to sign it with them. When you watch Ahmad Arbery being shot and you hear that those men have been released and were it not for the video and the outrage, those people would be living their lives what part of the contract is that in society? When, when you see George Floyd on the ground and you see a man losing his life in a way that no person should ever have to lose their life, at the hands of someone who's supposed to enforce the law, what part of the contract is that? And a lot of people say, well, what good does this do? Yeah, but what, what good doesn't it do? That's the question people don't ask the other way around. What good does it do to loot Target? What is it, how does it help you to loot Target? Yeah, but how does it help you to not loot Target? Answer that question. Because the only reason you didn't loot Target before was because you were upholding society's contract. There is no contract if law and people in power don't uphold their end of it. And that's the thing I think people don't understand sometimes, is that, is that we need people at the top to be the most accountable because they are the ones who are basically setting the tone and the tenor for everything that we do in society. It's the same way we tell parents to set an example for their kids. The same way we tell captains or coaches to set an example for their players. The same way you tell teachers to set an example for their students. The reason we do that is because we understand in society that if you lead by example, there is a good chance that people will follow that example that you have set. And so if the example law enforcement is setting is that they do not adhere to the laws, then why should the citizens of that society adhere to the laws when in fact the law enforces themselves don't? There have been lots of books that we have read through on the podcast that contain broken people or people who've been broken in, in various ways. And you know that I, I always try to approach 
our characters from a whether it's a, a position of empathy or or trying to understand their motivation or erring on the side of believing people's motives to be good, it's really hard when you see people doing things that you you look at and you think, well, that's wrong on all sides of this issue. There's a whole lot of behavior that we've seen that I think you'd be justified in saying, well, that's wrong. I think it's really important to have someone like Trevor Noah flip at least one of those things around, specifically the looting. And instead of questioning the looters, questioning the response that we, I mean, the natural response that anyone would have. Obviously, you're going to hear all sorts of crazy stuff all over the place from police officers breaking windows and walking away so that it can look like the place has been been trashed by other people or peaceful protests that are quite definitely peaceful that groups who want to make the peaceful protesters look bad show up to and start causing problems. I know that's happened several times in, I think it was Portland or Seattle. Friends of mine were involved. So recognizing that there are bad actors, but the bad actors don't make the message wrong is hard and complicated. And I know I've said it before, if if a problem were easy to solve, somebody would have already solved it. The problems in the United States are so deeply rooted and far-reaching back into our past that it raises lots of emotions. And people on both sides are very quick to point labels and um, stick those labels on, on other people or other groups, which, as we know, never helps anything. But I think the Edmund Burke quote, then the Dr. King quote that Cory Booker brought up and, and Stephen Colbert brought up the, the Edmund Burke quote, I think those are super important because you know I've done my best to stay silent on the podcast about politics in general. And, and that's because this is a place where we're here to talk about books. But I also know that the vast majority of people who listen to the podcast with you are creative people who make things with love and often donate things with love. And I know from my experience after 9-11 with my students that the process of doing something with love that you know you're going to donate, give, hand over, present to someone else who needs some love and some help is an enormously cathartic thing to do. It's, I don't even think it's altruistic. I think on some level it's very selfish because I feel better by helping someone else. The me feeling better part is really important because there is not a whole lot to feel good about right now. But the effect of that selfishness, I want to feel better. And the easiest, best, fastest, most useful way that I can do that is by making or doing something for someone else. That selfish act turns out to be pretty helpful to not just you, but also to the person that you're doing it for. There is a lot of noise on the internet. And it's very hard to find legitimate, useful places that can function as organized outlets so that you can be part of a larger group of people all doing something good and helpful. 
Amy at last night's Craftlet chat brought up postcardstovoters.org. I went and I looked at it, and uh, they've been doing this for a while now, uh, several years. They're get out the vote postcards, information that's being sent out to voters to get them to vote. And now a lot of it is getting information out on how to vote by mail because there's a lot of confusion and misinformation that's going out about voting by mail. So if you want to do something and would feel better about that something being active and perhaps a little crafty and something that you can make beautiful and kind, something that would be of use to another human person, I recommend you go look into postcardstovoters.org. It's an interesting group, wisely run, and it's something that you can do from home with a, or, or out in the world with a mask on, but it's not something that you would be able to do on your own. It does require a, a large group, a village of people in order to uh, have the effect that we hope it has. And you might think, wow, Heather, this is a really weird tangent and really not appropriate to the podcast. And why are you doing this? If you've listened to the show for a while, I'm, <laughs> I'm choking up. I'm sure you know that watching what's been happening in the United States has made me very, very scared for my former students in New York. And some of those students you've heard from on this podcast or in the, the Craftlet Thursday night chat. You know, in the past, I've also talked about the, the Me Too movement and depression and all of these taboo subjects, things that we aren't supposed to talk about in polite society. You may recall, if you're old enough, that when AIDS activism first really got kicked off in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, uh, one of the slogans that was used on, on signs and t-shirts was, silence equals death. And I think being silent about any of these topics, whether it's PTSD in soldiers who've come back from situations where they were in harm's way on a daily basis, or whether it's mental health issues, or domestic abuse, or child abuse, or a casual racist joke that you hear from someone who you otherwise like. If that is met with silence, then that means it's met with your tacit approval. And that's, that hasn't worked out so well for us so far. Back in, in what, 1990, the band They Might Be Giants released, or 1992, released an album called Flood. And there is a song on there, You and Your Racist Friend, which is a funny boppy song with some of the most important lyrics ever. And that was 30 years ago? This stuff isn't news. It hasn't been news for a really long time. But we've been so good at being distracted by crazy train wrecks that we haven't been paying attention to the man behind the curtain. And the man behind the curtain has been lynching people or beating his wife or harming children. Fill in the blank. It's time, I think, to remember who the enemy is. And the enemy is silence. Every time we let something go by without politely, gently questioning the person who says something that you find offensive, maybe you're hearing it not the way it was intended. Maybe your perception of what they said is different than the way they said it because of where they grew up 
or the the language they grew up speaking or or just different awarenesses gently asking a question and starting a conversation allows people to engage in a conversation without feeling that they're being attacked we know that none of us respond well if we feel like we're being attacked and we do dig in and become unreasonable and that won't help anything but listening to other people from other backgrounds and other places who've had other experiences makes, honestly, the literature that we listen to that much better. And, and you may think that this really doesn't apply to our story. But trust me when I tell you that within several chapters, you will start to see why silence equals death is a really, really important thing to keep in mind. Actually, we start to see stronger and stronger hints of it, even in today's chapters. So both in, in Ravelry in the Craftlet group and on Facebook on the Craftlet group and in the comments at craftlet.com slash 522, please share any places you have found that you trust, that you have had interactions with, where people can do something, anything, to actively help make the world a better place. Because I know I, I get so overwhelmed. I have to get off of the internet just to feel okay. But the, the more places I know of that feel like a refuge, the happier and better I, I feel and the happier and better I am. So today, in today's chapters, we have one word <laughs> that I have never seen before in my life. And that word is animadversion. Yes, you heard me right. A-N-I-M-A-D, animadversion, V-E-R-S-I-O-N. This is said by Helen Graham to Mr. Markham. It is the longest, most complicated word used for a fairly simple idea, but I do want you to know it because I have a feeling we will see this word or at least uh, references, oblique references to it for a while. It comes from Latin. Animus is mind, the mind. Adverto is kind of an interesting word. It, it has a range of meanings, all from uh, drawing attention to something, like advertise, adverto, all the way to reproach. So if it has a slightly negative tinge to it, that would be the correct assumption to make. So there's a phrase, animum advertere, which literally means to turn the mind to. In the case that we are hearing it in the text, it actually is used as an animadversion is a critical remark that is made. And it's usually a critical remark that could have an adverse reaction, something Something that if you say it out loud, something bad might happen. Something injurious would be the ultimate result of having said it. So that's that. Uh, you are going to see things in today's chapters that tell you a little bit more about Anne Bronte and how much she hates small talk and why. <laughs> but you are also going to see some things about Gilbert Markham. and how young he is in many, many ways. But 
how endearing that can be. Not always is, but can be. And I'll leave it at that. So here we'll have Eden Ballantyne read for us chapters 9 and 10. Here we go. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, Chapter 9, A Snake in the Grass. Though my affections might now be said to be fairly weaned from Eliza Millwood, I did not yet entirely relinquish my visits to the vicarage, because I wanted, as it were, to let her down easy, without raising much sorrow, or incurring much resentment, or making myself the talk of the parish. And besides, if I had wholly kept away, the vicar, who looked upon my visits as paid chiefly, if not entirely, to himself, would have felt himself decidedly affronted by neglect. But when I called there, the day after my interview with Mrs Graham, he happened to be from home. A circumstance by no means so agreeable to me as it had been on former occasions. Miss Millwood was there, it is true, but she of course would be little better than an unentity. However, I resolved to make my visit a short one, and to talk to Eliza in a brotherly, friendly sort of way, such as our long acquaintance might warrant me in assuming and which, I thought, would neither give offence nor serve to encourage false hopes. It was never my custom to talk about Mrs Graham, either to her or to anyone else, but I had not been seated three minutes before she brought that lady to the carpet herself, in a rather remarkable manner. "'Oh, Mr Markham!' said she, with a shocked expression and a voice subdued almost to a whisper. "'What do you think of these shocking reports about Mrs Graham?' Can you encourage us to disbelieve them? What reports? Ah, now, you know. She slyly smiled and shook her head. I know nothing about them. What in the world do you mean, Eliza? Oh, don't ask me. I can't explain it. She took up the cambric handkerchief, which she'd been beautifying with a deep lace border, and began to be very busy. What is it, Miss Millwood? What does she mean? said I, appealing to her sister, who seemed absorbed in hemming of a large coarse sheet. I don't know, replied she. Some idle slander someone has been inventing, I suppose. I've never heard it till Eliza told me the other day, but if all the parish dined it in my ears, I shouldn't believe a word of it. I know Mrs Graham too well. Quite right, Miss Millwood, and so do I, whatever it may be. Well, observed Eliza with a gentle sigh, it's well to have such a comfortable assurance regarding the worth of those we love. I only wish you may not find your confidence misplaced. And she raised her face and gave me such a look of sorrowful tenderness as might have melted my heart. But within those eyes, there lurked something that I did not like, and I wondered how I could ever have admired them. Her sister's honest face and small grey optics appeared far more agreeable. But I was out of temper with Eliza at the moment for her insinuations against Mrs Graham, which were false, I was certain, whether she knew it or not. I said nothing more on the subject, however, at the time, and but little on any other, for finally I could not well recover my equanimity. I presently rose and took leave, excusing myself under the plea of business at the farm, and to the farm I went, not troubling my mind one more whit about the possible truth of these mysterious reports but only wondering what they were, by whom originated, and on what foundations raised, and how they could be most effectually be silenced or disproved. A few days after this, we had another of our quiet little parties, to which the usual company of friends and neighbours had been invited, and Mrs Graham among the number. 
She could not now absent herself under the plea of dark evenings or inclement weather, and greatly to my relief she came. Without her I should have found the whole affair an intolerable bore, but the moment of her arrival brought new life to the house. And though I might not neglect the other guests for her, or expect to engross much of her attention and conversation to myself alone, I anticipated an evening of no common enjoyment. Mr Lawrence came too. He did not arrive till some time after the rest were assembled. I was curious to see how he would comport himself to Mrs Graham. A slight bow was all that passed between them on his entrance, and having politely greeted the other members of the company, he seated himself, quite aloof from the young widow, between my mother and Rose. "'Did you ever see such art?' whispered Eliza, who was my nearest neighbour. "'Would you not say they were perfect strangers?' "'Almost, but what then?' "'What then? Why, you can't pretend to be ignorant.' "'Ignorant of what?' demanded I, so sharply that she started and replied, "'Oh, hush! Don't speak so loud!' "'Well, tell me then,' I answered in a lower tone. "'What is it you mean? I hate enigmas.' Well, you know, I don't vouch for the truth of it. Indeed, far from it. But haven't you heard? I've heard nothing except from you. You must be willfully deaf, then, for anyone will tell you that... But I shall only anger you by repeating it. I see. So I had better hold my tongue. She closed her lips and folded her hands before her with an air of injured meekness. If you had wished not to anger me, you should have held your tongue from the beginning, or else spoken out plainly and honestly all you had to say. She turned aside her face, and pulled out her handkerchief, rose and went to the window, where she stood for some time, evidently dissolved in tears. I was astounded, provoked, ashamed, not so much by my harshness, as for her childish weakness. However, no one seemed to notice her, and shortly after we were summoned to the tea-table. In those parts, it was customary to sit to the tea-table on all occasions and make a meal of it, for we dined early. On taking my seat, I had rose on one side of me and an empty chair on the other. "'May I sit by you?' said a soft voice at my elbow. "'If you like,' was the reply, and Eliza slipped into the vacant chair. Then looking up at my face, with a half-sad, half-playful smile, she whispered, "'You're so stern, Gilbert.' I handed down a tea with a slightful, contemptuous smile and said nothing, for I had nothing to say. "'What have I done to offend you?' she said, more plainly. "'I wish I knew.' "'Come, take your tea, Eliza, don't be foolish,' responded I, handing her the sugar and the cream. Just then arose a slight commotion on the other side of me, occasioned by Mrs Wilson's coming to negotiate an exchange of seats with Rose. "'Will you be so good as to exchange places with me, Miss Markham?' said she, for I don't like to sit by Mrs Graham. If your mamma thinks it's proper to invite such persons to her house, she cannot object to her daughter keeping in company with them. This latter cause was added in a sort of soliloquy when Rose was gone, but I was not polite enough to let it pass. Will you be so good as to tell me what you mean, Miss Wilson? said I. The question startled her a little, but not much. Why, Mr Markham, replied she, coolly, having quickly recovered her self-possession. It surprises me, rather, that Mrs. Markham should invite such a person as Mrs. Graham to her house. But perhaps she's not aware that the lady's carriage is considered scarcely respectable. She is not, nor am I, 
and therefore would you oblige me by explaining your meaning a little further? This is scarcely the time or the place for such explanations, but I think you can hardly be so ignorant as you pretend. You must know her as well as I do. I think I do, perhaps a little better, and therefore, if you will inform me of what you have heard or imagined against her, I shall perhaps be able to set you right. Can you tell me then, who was her husband, or if she ever had any? Indignation kept me silent. At such a time and place I could not trust myself to answer. Have you never observed, said Eliza, what a striking likeness there is between that child of hers and... And whom? demanded Miss Wilson, with an air of cold but keen severity. Eliza was startled. The timidly spoken suggestion had been intended for my ears alone. Oh, I beg your pardon, pleaded she. I may be mistaken. Perhaps I was mistaken. But she accompanied her words with a sly glance of derision, directed at me from the corner of her, her disingenuous eye. There's no need to ask my pardon, replied her friend. But I see no one here that at all resembles that child except his mother. And when you hear ill-natured reports, Miss Eliza, I will thank you. That is, I think you will do well to refrain from repeating them. I presume the person you're alluding to is Mr Lawrence. But I think I can assure you that your suspicions in that respect are utterly misplaced. And if he has any particular connection with the lady at all, which no one has the right to assert, at least he has, what cannot be said of some others, sufficient sense of propriety to withhold him from acknowledging anything more than a bowing acquaintance in the presence of respectable persons. He was evidently both surprised and annoyed to find her here. Go it, cried Fergus, who was sat on the other side of Eliza, and was the only individual who shared that side of the table with us. Go it like breaks mine, you don't leave a one stone upon another. Miss Wilson drew herself up with a look of freezing scorn, but said nothing. Eliza would have replied, but I interrupted her by saying as calmly as I could, though in a tone which betrayed, no doubt, some little of what I felt within. We have enough of this subject. If we can only speak to slander our betters, let us hold our tongues. I think you're better, observed Fergus, and so does our good parson. He's been addressing the company in his richest vein all the while, and eyeing you from time to time, with looks of stern distaste, while you sat there, irreverently whispering and muttering together, and once he paused in the middle of a story or sermon, I don't know which, and fixed his eye upon you, Gilbert. As much to say, when Mr. Markham has done flirting with those two ladies, I will proceed. <laughs> what more was said at the tea table? I cannot tell. Nor how I found patience to sit till the meal was over. I remember, however, that I swallowed with difficulty the remainder of the tea that was in my cup, and ate nothing, and that the first thing I did was to stare at Arthur Graham, who was sat beside his mother on the opposite side of the table, and the second to stare at Mr. Lawrence, who sat below. And first, it struck me, that there was a likeness. But, on further contemplation, I concluded, it was only in imagination. Both, it is true, had more delicate features and smaller bones than commonly fall to a lot of individuals of the rougher sex. And Lawrence's complexion was pale and clear, and Arthur's delicately fair. 
but Arthur's tiny, somewhat stubby nose could never become so long and straight as Mr Lawrence's, and the outline of his face, though not full enough to be round, and too finely converging to the small, dimpled chin to be square, could never be drawn out to the long oval of the others. While the child's hair was evidently of a lighter, warmer tint than the elder gentleman's had ever been, and his large, clear blue eyes, though prematurely serious at times, were utterly dissimilar to the shy hazel eyes of Mr Lawrence, whence the sensitive soul looked so distrustfully forth, as ever ready to retire within, from the offence of a too rude, uncongenial world. Wretch that I was to harbour that detestable idea for a moment! Did I not know Mrs Graham? Had I not seen her, conversed with her time after time, was I not certain that she, in intellect, in purity and elevation of soul, was immeasurably superior to any of her detractors? That she was, in fact, the noblest and most adorable of her sex that I had ever beheld, or even imagined to exist. Yes, and I would say with Mary Millward, a sensible girl as she was, that if all the parish, eh, all the world, should din these horrible lies in my ears, I would not believe them, for I knew her better than they. Meanwhile, my brain was on fire with indignation, and my heart seemed ready to burst from its prison with conflicting passions. I regarded my two fair neighbours with a feeling of abhorrence and loathing I scarcely endeavoured to conceal. I was rallied from several quarters for my abstraction and gallant neglect of the ladies, but I cared little for that. All I cared about, besides that one grand subject of my thoughts, was to see the cups travel up to the tea tray and not come down again. I thought Mr Millwood would never cease telling us that he was no tea drinker, and that it was highly injurious to keep loading the stomach with slops to the exclusion of more wholesome substance, and so give himself time to finish his fourth cup. At length it was over, and I rose and left the table, and the guests without a word of apology, I could endure their company no longer. I rushed out to cool my brain in the balmy evening air and to compose my mind or indulge my passionate thoughts in the solitude of the garden. To avoid being seen from the windows, I went down a quiet little avenue that skirted one side of the enclosure, at the bottom of which was a seat embowered in roses and honeysuckle. Here I sat down to think over the virtues and wrongs of the Lady of Walfell Hall but I had not been so occupied two minutes before voices and laughter and glimpses of moving objects through the trees informed me that the whole company had turned out to take an airing in the garden too. However, I nestled up in the corner of the bower and hoped to retain possession of it, secure alike from observation and intrusion. But no, confound it, there was someone coming down the avenue. Why couldn't they enjoy the flowers and the sunshine of the open garden and leave that sunless nook to me? and the gnats, and midges. But peeping through my fragrant screen of the interwoven branches to discover who my intruders were, for a murmur of voices told me it was more than one, my vexation instantly subsided, and far other feelings agitated my still and quiet soul. For there was Mrs Graham, slowly moving down the walk with Arthur by her side, and no one else. Why were they alone? and the poison of detracting tongues already spread through all. And had they turned their backs on her? I now recollected having seen Mrs Wilson, in the early part of the evening, edging her chair closer to my mother, and bending forward, 
evidently in the delivery of some important confidential intelligence, and from the incessant wagging of her head, and frequent distortions of her wrinkled physiognomy, and the winking and malicious twinkle of her little ugly eyes, I judged it was some spicy piece of scandal that engaged her powers, and from the cautious privacy of the communication, I suppose some person then present was the luckless object of her calumnies. And from all these tokens, together with my mother's looks and gestures of mingling horror and incredulity, I now concluded that the object to have been Mrs Graham. I did not emerge from my place of concealment till she had nearly reached the bottom of the walk, lest my appearance should drive her away, and when I did step forward, she stood still, and seemed inclined to turn back as it was. Oh, don't let us disturb you, Mr Markham, said she. We came here to seek retirement ourselves, not to intrude on your seclusion. I am no hermit, Mrs Graham, though I own it looks rather like it to absent myself in this uncourteous fashion from my guests. I feared you were unwell, said she, with a look of real concern. I was rather, but it's over now. Do sit a little and rest and tell me how you like this arbour, said I, and lifting Arthur by the shoulders, I planted him in the middle of the seat by of securing his mamma who, acknowledging it to be a tempting place of refuge, threw herself in one corner while I took possession of the other. But that word refuge disturbed me. Had their unkindness then really driven her to seek for peace in solitude? Why have they left you alone? I asked. It is I who has left them, was the smiling rejoiner. I was weary to death with the small talk. Nothing wears me out like that. I cannot imagine how they can go on as they do. I couldn't help smiling at the serious depth of her wonder. It is that they think it is their duty to be continually talking, pursued she, and so never pause to think, but fill up with aimless trifles and vain repetitions when subjects of real interest fail to present themselves. Or do they really take pleasure in such discourse? Very likely they do, said I. Their shallow minds can hold no great ideas and their light heads are carried away by trivialities that would not move a better furnished skull, and their only alternative to such discourse is to plunge over head and ears into sloughs of scandal, which is their chief delight. Not all of them, surely, cried the lady, astonished at the bitterness of my remark. No, certainly. I exonerate my sister from such degraded tastes, and my mother too, if you include her in your animaversions. I meant no animaversions against anyone, and certainly intended no disrespectful allusions to your mother. I have known some sensible persons greatly adept in that style of conversation when circumstance impelled them to it, but it is a gift I cannot boast the possession of. I kept up my attention on this occasion as long as I could, but when my powers were exhausted, I stole away to seek a few minutes' repose in this quiet walk. I hate talking when there is no exchange of ideas or sentiments, and no good given or received. Well, said I, if I ever trouble you with my loquacity, tell me so at once, and I promise not to be offended, for I possess the faculty of enjoying the company of those I, of my friends, as well in silence as in conversation. I don't quite believe you, but if it were so, you would exactly suit me for a companion. Am I all you wish for, then, in other respects? No, I don't mean that. How beautiful those little clusters of foliage look when the sun comes through behind them, said she, on purpose of changing the subject. 
and they did look beautiful. Where at intervals the level rays of the sun penetrating the thickness of the trees and shrubs on the opposite side of the path before us, relieving their dusky verdure by displaying patches of semi-transparent leaves of resplendent golden green. I almost wish I was not a painter, observed my companion. Why so? One would think at such a time you would most exult in your privilege of being able to imitate the various brilliant and delightful touches of nature. No, for instead of delivering myself up to the full enjoyment of them, as others do, I'm always troubling my head about how I could produce the same effect upon canvas. And as that can never be done, it is mere vanity and vexation of spirit. Perhaps you cannot do it to satisfy yourself, but you may do succeed in delighting others with the result of your endeavours. Well, after all, I should not complain. Perhaps few people gain their livelihood with so much pleasure in their toil as I do. Here is someone coming. She seemed vexed at the interruption. It is only Mr Lawrence and Miss Wilson, said I, coming to enjoy a quiet stroll. They will not disturb us. I cannot quite decipher the expression of her face, but I was satisfied there was no jealousy therein. What business had I to look for it? What sort of person is Miss Wilson? She is elegant and accomplished, above the generality of her birth and station, and some say is ladylike and agreeable. I thought her somewhat frigid and rather supercilious in her manner today. Very likely she might be so to you. She has possibly taken a prejudice against you, for I think she regards you in the light of a rival. Me? Impossible! Mr Markham! said she, evidently astonished and annoyed. Well, I know nothing about it returned I, rather doggedly, for I thought her annoyance was chiefly against myself. The pair had now approached within a few paces of us. Our arbour was set snugly back in a corner, before which the avenue, at its termination, turned off into a more airy walk along the bottom of the garden. As they approached this, I saw, by the aspect of Jane Wilson, that she had directed her companion's attention to us, and as well by a cold, sarcastic smile, as by the few isolated words of her discourse that reached me, I knew full well that she was impressing him with the idea that we were strongly attached to each other. I noticed that he coloured up to the temple, gave us one furtive glance in passing, and walked on, looking grave, but seemingly offered no reply to her remarks. It was true, then, that he had some designs upon Mrs Graham, and were the honourable, he would not be so anxious to conceal them. She was blameless, of course, but he was detestably beyond all count. While these thoughts flashed through my mind, my companion abruptly rose, and calling her son, said she would now go in a quest of the company, and departed up the avenue. Doubtless she heard or guessed something of Miss Wilson's remarks, and therefore it was natural enough she should choose to continue the tete-a-tete no longer, especially as at that moment my cheeks were burning with indignation against my former friend the token of which she might mistake for a blush of stupid embarrassment. For this I owe Miss Wilson yet another grudge, and still the more I thought upon her conduct, the more I hated her. It was late in the evening before I joined the company. I found Mrs Graham already equipped for departure, and taking leave of the rest, who were now returning to the house, I offered, nay begged to accompany her home. Mr Lawrence was standing by at the time, conversing with someone else. He did not look at us, but on hearing my earnest request, he paused in the middle of a sentence to listen for her reply, and went on with a look of quiet satisfaction the moment he found out it was to be a denial. 
The denial it was, decided though not unkind. She could not be persuaded to think there was any danger for herself or her child in travelling those lonely lanes and fields without assistance. It was daylight still, and she should meet no one, or if she did, the people were quiet and harmless. She was well assured. In fact, she would not hear of anyone's putting himself out of the way to accompany her, though Fergus vouchsafed to offer his services in case they should be more acceptable than mine. Her mother begged she might send one of the farming men to escort her. When she was gone, the rest was all blank or worse. Lawrence attempted to draw me into conversation, but I snubbed him and went to another part of the room. Shortly after the party broke up, and he himself took leave. When he came to me, I was blind to his extended hand and deaf to his good night, till he repeated it a second time, and then, to get rid of him, I muttered in an inarticulate reply, accompanied by a sullen nod. "'What's the matter, Markham?' whispered he. I replied by a wrathful and contemptuous stare. "'Are you angry because Mrs. Gray would not let you go home with her?' he asked, with a faint smile that nearly exasperated me beyond control. But swallowing down all fierce answers, I merely demanded, "'What business is it of yours?' "'Why none?' replied he with a provoking quietness. "'Only,' and he raised his eyes to my face, and spoke with an unusual solemnity, only, let me tell you, Markham, that if you have any designs in that quarter, they will certainly fail, and it grieves me to see you cherish false hopes and wasting your strength in useless efforts for... Hypocrite! I exclaimed, and he held his breath and looked very blank, turned white about the gills and went away without another word. I had wounded him to the quick. Chapter 10 A Contract and a Quarrel When all were gone, I learnt that the vile slander had indeed been circulated throughout the company, in the very presence of the victim. Rose, however, vowed she did not and would not believe it, and my mother made the same declaration, though not, I fear, with the same amount of real, unwavering incredulity. It seemed to dwell continually on her mind, and she kept irritating me from time to time by such expressions as, Dear, dear, who would have thought it? Well, I always thought there was something odd about her. You see what it is for women to affect to be different to other people. And once it was, I misdoubted that appearance of mystery from the very first. I thought there would no good come of it. This is sad, sad business, to be sure. Why, well, mother, you said you didn't believe these tales, said Fergus. No more I do, my dear. But then, you know... There must be some foundation. The foundation is in the wickedness and falsehood of the world, said I, and in the fact that Mr Lawrence has been seen to go that way once or twice of an evening, and the village gossips say he goes to pay his addresses to the strange lady, and the scandalmongers have greedily seized the rumour to make it their basis of their own infernal structure. Well, but, Gilbert... There must be something in a manner to countenance such reports. Did you see anything in a manner? No, certainly. But then, you know, I always said there was something strange about her. I believe it was on that very evening that I ventured on another invasion of Wildfell Hall. From the time of our party, which was upwards of a week ago, I had been making daily efforts to meet its mistress in her walks, and was always disappointed. She must have managed it so on purpose had nightly kept revolving in my mind some pretext for another call. At length, 
I concluded that the separation could be endured no longer. By this time, you see, I was pretty far gone. And, taking from the bookcase an old volume that I thought she might be interested in, though from its unsightly and somewhat dilapidated condition, I had not yet ventured to offer it for perusal, I hastened away. But not without sundry misgivings as to how she would receive me, or how I could summon courage to present myself with so slight an excuse. But perhaps I might see her in the field, or the garden, and then there would be no great difficulty. It was the formal knocking at the door, with the prospect of being gravely ushered in by Rachel to the presence of a surprised, uncordial mistress that so greatly disturbed me. My wish, however, was not gratified. Mrs Graham herself was not to be seen. But there was Arthur, playing with his frolicsome little dog in the garden. I looked over the gate and called him to me. He wanted me to come in, but I told him I could not without his mother's leave. I'll go ask her, said the child. No, no, Arthur, you mustn't do that. But if she's not engaged, just ask her to come here a minute. Tell her I want to speak to her. He ran to perform my bidding and quickly returned with his mother. How lovely she looked with her dark ringlets streaming in the light summer breeze, her fair cheeks slightly flushed and her countenance radiant with smiles. Dear Arthur, what did I not owe to you for this and every other happy meeting? Through him, I was at once delivered from all formality and terror and constraint. In love affairs, there is no mediator like a merry, simple-hearted child, ever ready to cement divided hearts, to span the unfriendly gulf of custom, to melt the ice of cold reserve and overthrow the separate walls of dread formality and pride. Well, Mr Markham, what is it? said the young mother, accosting me with a pleasant smile. I wanted you to look at this book and, if you please, to take it and peruse it at your leisure. I make no apology for calling you out on such a lovely evening, though it may be a matter of no great importance. Tell him to come in, Mama, said Arthur. Would you like to come in? asked the lady. Yes, I should like to see your improvements in the garden. And how your sister's roots have prospered in my charge, added she as she opened the gate. And we sauntered through the garden and talked of the flowers, the trees and the book and then of other things. The evening was kind and genial, and so was my companion. By degrees I waxed more warm and tender than perhaps I had ever been before, but still I said nothing tangible, and she attempted no repulse, until, in passing a moss-rose tree that I had brought her some weeks since, in my sister's name, she plucked a beautiful half-open bud and bade me give it to Rose. May I not keep it myself? I asked. No, but here is another for you. Instead of taking it quietly, I likewise took the hand that offered it and looked into her face. She let me hold it for a moment and I saw a flash of ecstatic brilliance in her eye, a glow of glad excitement on her face. I thought my hour of victory was come, but instantly a painful recollection seemed to flash upon her. A cloud of anguish darkened her brow. A marble paleness blanched her cheek and lip. There seemed a moment of inward conflict, and with a sudden effort, she withdrew her hand and retreated a step or two back. Now, Mr Markham, said she with a kind of desperate calmness, I must tell you plainly that I cannot do this. I like your company because I am alone here, 
and your conversation pleases me more than any other person. But if you cannot be content to regard me as a friend, a plain, cold, motherly, or sisterly friend, I must beg you to leave me now, and let me alone hereafter. In fact, we must be strangers for the future. I will then be your friend, or brother, or anything you wish, if you'll only let me continue to see you. But tell me why I cannot be anything more. There was a perplexion and thoughtful pause. Is it in consequence of some rash vow? It is something of the kind, she answered. Some day I may tell you, but at present you had better leave me, and never, Gilbert, put me in the painful necessity of repeating what I have just now said to you, she earnestly added, giving me a hand in serious kindness. How sweet, how musical my own name sounded in her mouth. I, I will not, I replied, but beg your pardon this offence on condition that you never repeat it. And may I come and see you now and then? Perhaps, occasionally, provided you never abuse the privilege. I make no empty promises, but you shall see. The moment you do, our intimacy is at an end, that's all. And will you always call me Gilbert? It sounded more sisterly, and it will serve to remind me of our contract. She smiled, and once more bid me go and at length I judge it prudent to obey, and she re-entered the house, and I went down the hill. But as I went, the tramp of horses' hooves fell on my ear, and broke the stillness of the dewy evening, and looking towards the lane, I saw a solitary equestrian coming up, inclining to dusk as it was, and knew him at a glance. It was Mr Lawrence on his grey pony. I flew across the field, leapt the stone wall, and walked down the lane to meet him, On seeing me, he suddenly drew up his little steed, and seemed inclined to turn back, but on second thought, apparently judged it better to continue his course as before. He accosted me with a slight bow, and edging close to the wall, endeavoured to pass on, but I was not so minded. Seizing his horse by the bridle, I exclaimed, Now, Lawrence, I will have this mystery explained. Tell me where you are going, and what you mean to do, at once and distinctly. Will you take your hand off the bridle? said he, quietly. You're hurting my pony's mouth. You and your pony be... What makes you so coarse and brutal, Markham? I'm quite ashamed of you. You answer my question. Before you leave this spot, I will know what you mean by this perfidious duplicity. I shall answer no question till you let go of the bridle if you stand till morning. Now then, said I, enclosing my hand, but still standing before him. Ask me some other time, when you can speak a little like a gentleman, returned he and he made an effort to pass again. But I quickly recaptured the pony, scarce less astonished than its master at such uncivil usage. Really, Mr Markham, this is too much, said the latter. Can I not go to see my tenant on matters of business without being assaulted in this manner by... This is no time for business, sir. I'll tell you now what I think of your conduct. You'd better deter your opinion to a more convenient season, interrupted he in a low tone. Here's the vicar and in truth, the vicar was just behind me, plodding onward from some remote corner of his parish. I immediately released the squire, and he went on his way, saluting Mr Millward as he passed. What? Quarrelling, Markham? replied the latter, addressing himself to me. And about that young widow, I doubt, he added, reproachfully shaking his head. But let me tell you, young man, here he put his face into mine with an important confidential air, She's not worth it! And he confirmed the assertion 
by a solemn nod. Mr. Melwood! I exclaimed, in a tone of wrathful menace that made the reverent gentleman look round aghast, astonished at such an unwanted insolence, and stare me in the face, with a look that plainly said, What, this to me? But I was too indignant to apologise, or to speak another word to him. I turned away, and hastened homeward, descending with rapid strides the steep rough lane, and leaving him to follow as he pleased. So Gilbert's day didn't turn out so well, ultimately. But I, I said there's kind of something endearing about this, and here it is. In every other book I can think of, when scurrilous, possibly false, gossip is spread about somebody, it is universally believed. For, I mean, in, in the books that I'm, I'm coming up with and thinking of in my mind right now, generally, the, the gossip is, is believed. And if it's a female and a male that are involved in the gossip, the male is generally blameless and the female blamed. And in cases like Much Ado About Nothing, that uh, comes back to haunt, <laughs> does damage to the, the female, and in fact comes back to haunt the guy. But, but the idea that the slander that is put on Hero in Much Ado About Nothing ruins her life, at least temporarily, until, because it's a comedy, everything ends in marriage. Here, Gilbert specifically refuses to do that. Now, he's, he's spending an awful lot of time reading other people's looks. So that doesn't always lead him to coming to the right conclusions. He sees someone blush and therefore thinks that they're guilty. Or he sees someone blanch and therefore thinks that they are ashamed, embarrassed, scared, whatever. I can tell you now, pay really close attention to anything going on between Markham and Lawrence. And pay attention to the descriptions of Lawrence physically. You get a, a lot of information, and, and we're getting it through Gilbert's lens. And as we said before, the conceit of the book is that Gilbert is telling this story, this story of his own past, to a friend. It's being written in his later adult years about his early adult years, but he's writing it in a way so as to not give anything away. He's trying to put himself back into the position that he was in when the thing first occurred. So he could be writing tons of commentary, explaining how he was wrong about this or right about that, or here he was totally misguided. He's not doing that. We have to pick up information from Gilbert Markham's narrative, just as we would if this was a, a third-person narrator telling us the story in real time. So we, we have a lot of information here about Lawrence. Interesting information about Gilbert in that he still has to go to the Millward's house and put up with the vicar because the vicar has thought this whole time that he was coming over to see the gentleman himself and not Eliza. And now Gilbert's kind of gotten himself in this tricky situation. His first comment about Miss Millward, Miss Mary Millward, was slight that, you know, oh, she was there too kind of thing. But by the end of that chapter, when Mary is agreeing with him, she's become quite a sensible woman. So he, like I said, he is not always self-aware, but we sure get a clear picture of who he is, warts and all, from his own narration, which is pretty impressive. So Helen Graham, 
doesn't like small talk, has a beautiful child who either does or doesn't look like Mr. Lawrence. We'd have no idea why Mr. Lawrence was riding over to Wildfell Hall in the evening, but he was. We know that he and Gilbert are not communicating very clearly <laughs> together. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot going on, and I can't give anything else away. So thank you for continuing, for putting up with me, and for doing all of the wonderful things that I know you are already doing in your daily life to help make the world a good and better place. You keep me going many times, many weeks, lots and lots of days. You keep me going. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Take care of yourselves. Be good to each other. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.